This is Financial Standard, the definitive source of news, thought leadership and analysis for Australian wealth management professionals. Financial Standard. Take the lead. Hello and welcome to the Financial Standard podcast. I'm editor Jamie Williamson. It's no secret that financial advisors have suffered in recent years with costly compliance and education requirements taking their toll. Now, the ASIC levy paid by advisors has finally been frozen and reverted to 2018-2019 levels, but recent stats from FASIA show that more than 2,000 that took and passed the exam have left the industry anyway. So is it too little too late? With us today is our guest, Phil Anderson, General Manager of Policy and Professionalism at the Association of Financial Advisors, to give us some background and his views on the future of financial advice. Thanks so much for joining us today, Phil. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, really appreciate you having me on the, the program today. Uh, really looking forward to having a good chat. So obviously, there's a lot going on in the advice industry at the moment, um, a lot of pressure that advisors are feeling. Do you think that maybe we could start off, you could provide a bit of a, an overview of kind of how we got to this point? Yeah, sure. And look, I, I guess we should be really clear on uh, what point we are at. And, mm-hmm. and let's be Let's be frank and open about this. I think we're we're facing a very challenging environment. We've got declining advisor numbers. Um, cost of running advice practices are going up. Highly compliance driven, red tape overload, and and generally there's a negative perception that's lingering about financial advice. Now I think it's really important to say that does not apply to existing clients who who are supportive of their advisors and value the advice they get. So let's have a look at um, how we got here. Well, I think one of the problems is that we've got this cycle of reform that is continuing even before the last cycle has actually had the opportunity to deliver benefits. So this has been running really since 2014 with back-to-back changes, and we still we still haven't seen the full impact of the, of the changes that have been made in the past. Looking at it more broadly from the from the issue of the perception of advice, we, we have to go back to the compare the pair campaign. Now, I've I've got to say that um, it's deep, it was a deeply flawed campaign because it attributed no value to advice and particularly no value to the strategies that were provided by advisors um, and all the other benefits that, that come from advice. So whilst it was deeply flawed, it was also, I have to say, pretty effective. We've also had the GFC, the Ripoll inquiry, all of those inquiries in 2014 that led to LIF and professional standards, and then the Royal Commission, which really capped it off. Hmm. So why is that important? Well, I think it's impacted advice in a few significant ways. It's turned the mainstream media and some non-advised clients against financial advice. And as a result, there's been a consequential impact on the on the politicians. Um, in that environment, the, the flow has all been one way. The pendulum has swung way too far um, and the impact of the Royal Commission has been long lasting. Um, it's such an easy fallback for politicians and the media to refer to the conduct that was exposed in the Royal Commission. But I think this is changing. The compare the pair campaign is long gone. Um, The big banks have exited financial advice and advisors are increasingly using industry funds, which is taking away um, one of, I think, the the detracting factors 
that we've had to get to where we are now. And I mean, obviously, that's there's a lot there. Um, and obviously, it's probably a cumulative effect. But do you think that at the moment, there's any one particular issue that's kind of causing all the grief that we're seeing? Well, I think there's a number of contributing factors, but the point I should make is that the advisor community is not homogenous. So mm -hmm. there are different pockets who are struggling with different issues. We've got uh, 14,000 advisors who have already got through the exam. So that's not the, the factor for them. Um, mm -hmm. Some of, uh, many have obviously got through the education, but a lot are still challenged by what they'll need to do between now and um, 1 January 2026. For others, it's, it's about the increased costs. It's about um, revenue crunch. Uh, it's about the compliance overload. It's the fact that some advisors are simply no longer enjoying providing advice. Yes, they love being in front of clients, but the time they're able to spend in front of clients has declined because of all of the compliance and administration. So it's all of those driving factors influencing people's motivation and intent to stay in advice. Um, so I don't think there's one contributing factor. Um, and that's because they're not homogenous. You know, some are a better position yeah. on some fronts than others. You touched on education there and, and also on the exam. Um, in some of the more recent results that came out about the FASIER exam, FASIER actually included some of its stats about, you know, how many people have taken the exam, how many people have passed the exam. And, and in those stats, they actually revealed that it was almost like 2,000 advisors who had sat the exam and passed the exam are no longer in the industry. Um, do you think that that costs are the main driver of that? I mean, they've taken, they've made the effort, they've, you know, started on their education journey that they wanted to take and, and they're trying to fulfill those requirements that, are, that they have to, and then they've still left anyway. What, what do you think is, is driving that? I think this is a, a really interesting question. We have seen this data emerge only very recently. So I think it's only been the last two um, exam results that we've seen some indication that yeah. the number that has been reported as having passed the exam is not the same number as those who have passed and are still on the financial advisor register. And as you said, there's about a 2000 difference. The most recent uh, media release from FASIA suggested there was about 310 new advisors who'd passed the exam and presumably not all of those are practicing and around 1,650 advisors who had passed it but had since left the, the FAR. Now, I think if we look at this, there's always going to be some level of attrition. And, and so we, we've got to uh, attribute some of that to natural attrition that people may have left for a range of reasons. They, you know, they may um, have left because they've moved into a, a new field or they've started doing something else. Uh, they may have left because they don't want to continue to do advice. They may uh, not have left. They may just be in a transition. Keep in mind, there's been a lot of turnover and disruption in the advice sector. So people could be between licensees. They could have left their old licensee and be looking for another one. The other significant contributing factor is the uh, if we go back to who was eligible to sit the exam, 
it was anyone who was on the financial advisor register between the 1st of January 2016 and the 1st of January 2019. So it's quite possible that some people who were on the register during that period left um, or maybe are, are doing something else in the meantime, doing another role within the, the advice sector, have sat the exam, they've chosen to sat the exam, um, to sit the exam, they've passed, um, but they're not um, practicing at the time that they sat the exam. So I think there could be a range of contributing factors uh, we really don't have the insight on whether this paints a picture of a lot of people having sat the exam with the intent to stay in the profession, but subsequently having chosen to left, leave. We, we don't know um, that that is the most important factor in it. Okay. Okay. That's, I, that's interesting. There's obviously a lot of factors there that we need to consider, which Fazia didn't kind of um, reveal in its release. Um, we've already mentioned cost being a huge, a huge um, issue facing advisors and, and their ability to provide advice and, and the accessibility of advice. And recently, they it was announced that the ASIC levy was going to be frozen and, and, and reverted to the 2018-2019 levels after having, you know, increased significantly in, in just, you know, a year and two years. Do you think that this is going to be enough to kind of stop the flow of advisors leaving the industry? Thanks, Jamie. I I think that it's a big achievement, and I'm I'm really pleased that the government's made this announcement. I think the levy could easily have been close to three thousand five hundred dollars. So each for the 2020-21 year. So each advisor. Uh, will in effect be saving probably around 2,400, 2,300 maybe um, per year for the next two mm -hmm. years as a result of that. So that's a really good outcome. But if you go out there and, and you ask advisors, you know, how significant is the ASIC funding levy in the context of their overall um, business cost structure? Uh, mm -hmm. It's not that significant. It is important, but it's not that significant. If you look at licensee fees, they have risen, risen substantially in the last couple of years. You know, we've seen um, we've seen them probably rise on average from somewhere in the twenties, maybe, and I'm talking twenty thousand, um, to at least fifty thousand now. For mm -hmm. uh, and it depends upon different licensees how they structure that. Um, and the amount that might be paid for the first advisor in the practice versus subsequent advisors. But if we talk about the first one, it is first advisor in the practice, it has risen substantially much more than the ASIC funding levy. PI has gone up, um, compliance costs have gone up, admin support, you, you talk about uh, the costs that have been driven by the annual renewal requirements. We'll see other costs um, kick in because of DDO and um, and other reforms that, that have come through. So mm -hmm. I think the message is that that was a, an important win, but it on its own is not going to um, uh, address the fact that cost in, a, in the advice practices has increased so substantially in the last few years. Yeah. On that, do you see because of this cost, you know, issue, 
have you noticed among the AFA members that there's a lot of advisors moving to sort of service that high net worth space as opposed to mums and dads? You know, I think that it it's a natural outcome of uh, everything that's that's happened. It's it's not just in the financial planning space, but it's also in the life insurance space. So if we talk about financial planning, first of all, um, grandfathered commissions have gone. The cost of servicing um, an, an average client has gone up substantially. So that means that advisors were no longer able to have clients on the books for for fees of a thousand dollars a year you know we've seen that rise quite quite materially um i think the average is is probably closer to three thousand now so all of those um what i'd call lower fee clients advisors have needed to look at um and there, yeah. there's many many consultants out there that are talking to advisors about how they reprice uh, the services that they're giving to clients. And some of those clients have agreed to, to come up the, the fee scale, but some have um, necessarily uh, been let go or they've made their own decision um, to discontinue the advice relationship. So there's this yeah. natural trend to focus on, on the more affluent clients. Um, but keep in mind um, that the, yes, there there are those practices that that have um, really focused on the high net wealth clients, and um, they're probably in a better position as a result of all of this reform than than those who have been working um, more, um, I guess, predominantly in the everyday Australian space. Now, if I talk about life insurance, one of the things that we've seen fundamentally change there is with the life insurance cap at 60%, advisors are no longer uh, happy to, to look at a client who's got a premium of $2,000 because they're only going to get $1,200 uh, in that first year, and that's not going to cover their costs. So in terms of who advisors have been prepared to work with, they've had to necessarily go up the scale in terms of, uh, of that first year premium. So now they're looking at clients as a minimum who've got a first year premium of $5,000 and they'll be paid $3,000 to provide that advice to make it worthwhile. So yes, I think we've seen um, uh, a lot less clients, particularly at that lower fee end um, and advisors being more focused on, on the more affluent and in some cases on the high net wealth space. And so then in addition to the ASIC levy, uh, the government also recently made changes to the, the, the design and distribution obligation legislation that's supposed to become coming into effect on October 5. Um, and, and the changes that they made, do it, they are trying to sort of relieve some pressure for advisors there. Um, and, and it's said they'll make some changes again in time. But um, does this show that the government realises that there's been this huge impact on on advice and, and on the availability of advice and accessibility like but it, but are these changes are they going to actually make a difference is it is it almost too little too late now a good question jamie i mean we're talking about we've already talked about where advisors are at now and they yeah. haven't yet come to terms with what they're going to need to do in a month's time 
um, which will, because uh, there's five fundamental reforms impacting advice and more that are impacting financial services more generally that come in uh, in October. We've got um, the new breach reporting regime, we've got um, mandatory reference checking, we've also got the, the changes to income protection products on the 1st of October. And then on the 5th of October, we've got DDO uh, and also the new internal dispute resolution regime that kicks in. So some of these changes, they haven't yet really come to terms with, um, which is going to have more impact on their businesses. The DDO decision was important. And I think um, a lot of advisors really hadn't wrapped their mind around DDO. I think licensees were starting to think about it. But this decision was really important. And, and that's because the DDO legislation has been built in a way where the um, issuers will define what the record, reporting requirements will be and the frequency of those reporting requirements, but it will necessarily need to include reporting of any complaints. Mm -hmm. But the legislation said you had to report nil complaints. So you think about that for small licensees who have broad approved product lists, they use lots of different products, they could spend a huge amount of their time each quarter, because many of these reports would need to be quarter, quarterly, just yeah. getting the administration right to submit these nil, nil reports. Now, that outcome is, a, is an important one, but in, in the DDO space, that's not the only thing. Advisors are going to need to devote quite a bit of time to understanding target market determinations, including what the reporting requirements are. They're going to need to report complaints. Um, the, and, and it's important to understand that they're going to need to start tracking complaints about products. This is different from mm -hmm. tracking complaints about advice. If you have someone complain about an in, uh, the investment performance of a particular fund or they complain to you about uh, a premium increase for a life insurance product, you've all of a sudden got to start tracking those. In, in the past, yeah. you say, well, it's not about the advice. So it's not my complaint. I don't need to track it. But now they will need to start tracking these complaints. And then you've yeah. got reporting of, uh, of transactions that are outside the target market determination. And we've got significant dealings is another thing that advisors will need to um, start tracking and reporting on. So yes, um, we do want to see more modifications. We do want to see more regulatory certainty. Um, it's not just about DDO. Uh, we've been very focused on the complexity around the, the new breach reporting regime. And we'd like to see sensible modifications made to reduce the administrative and compliance costs that all these reforms are going to force on advice businesses. You touched on um, the mandatory reference checking as well there. Obviously, the intention of that is, is positive and it, it's, um, you know, to the benefit of consumers and, and licensees. What impact is that going to have on the advisors themselves? So I, I agree with your point. I think um, reference checking is important. I think it's very important to ensure that um, people who do the wrong thing or have done the wrong thing in the past um, can't just readily be um, moved from one licensee to another without uh, an, an awareness of what has happened in the past 
and what issues might need to be managed going forward. But um, more broadly, um, I think the, there's an independency between breach reporting and, um, and reference checking, because if a breach report is uh, submitted on a particular advisor, that will be mandatory to include in the reference check. So um, advisors need to be cognizant of, of the flow through of, um, of doing the wrong thing. And if it's reported to ASIC and the threshold for reporting breaches to ASIC is much lower um, in this new regime, then they could end up being reported to ASIC and they could therefore very easily end out having that recorded on their reference check when they next um, look to move to another licensee. Yeah. So I, I think it, it's something to be supported in, in aggregate, but we need to be aware of the impact that it will have. Yeah. I mean, we've obviously covered a lot and there's obviously a lot going on that we haven't covered as well. But I think the big question is, can the advice industry be fixed? Can it be turned around? And if so, what do you think it's going to take to make that happen? My answer is most certainly yes, and you would expect that I would be saying that because <laughs> um, I'm part of the, the advice sector and I'm very committed to the success of financial advice. I think the, the, most, the strongest um, determining factor in this is the demand for advice is growing. Advisor numbers are declining, but demand for advice is growing. And those businesses that, that have adapted, um, have restructured, they're getting on with it. There are some mm -hmm. businesses that are thriving um, and they're in more and more um, good stories uh, about the value of advice. Um, and for those who, who are, operate with a smaller number of, of clients of a, with a very close, um, intense relationship with those clients, the impact of some of the additional administration is not as significant as it is for those advisors trying to work with a, a much larger number of, of lower fee paying clients. So some businesses are thriving. We're going to look at this in terms of the pendulum around um, red tape, bureaucracy, additional regulatory requirements the pendulum needs to start to swing back and the level of red tape needs to be reduced. We're not there yet. Um, and, the, and the 2020 um, quality of advice review that Treasury will be running might be a, a really good opportunity um, for that to start to make material inroads, to identify the reforms that have been put through in recent years that only add to complexity and cost don't add value um, from a client perspective. So there's an, the opportunity, I think, to really deeply assess those and start to turn them around. From a political sentiment perspective, I think we've already started to see uh, a fundamental change. And if, if anyone listened to the speeches that were made in the parliament around the single disciplinary body legislation, the Better Advice Bill, then it's quite evident that those speeches are now signaling a general acceptance of the fact that uh, things have gone too far, um, advisor numbers are declining, compliance has become overwhelming, um, red tape is excessive, and there's a real challenge to being able to provide 
quality of advice, quality advice in a cost-efficient manner to everyday Australians. So I think we've got to a point now where um, there's the acknowledgement of the need to fix these issues. Uh, mm -hmm. What we're still waiting for is the commitment to do it. Um, but there are early signs that, that we are heading in the right direction. And, and whilst I'm always going to be optimistic about the future, I think there are now signs that some of the, the problems we've found ourselves in are, are front of mind to politicians and there will be a commitment to fix it going forward. So what you're saying is that the, the outlook is positive? I believe that there is a long-term future to advice. And I think that um, we're starting to see some positive turnarounds. I think we have a lot of great advisors who are highly professional, delivering great service to their clients, delivering great value to their clients. So ultimately, mm -hmm. uh, that will have to win out in the end. Absolutely. So much food for thought there, Phil. Thank you so much again for taking the time to chat with me today. No worries. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to Phil Anderson, General Manager, Policy and Professionalism at the Association of Financial Advisors. We hope you enjoyed our chat. Please remember that you can subscribe to Financial Standard for notification of our weekly episodes wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Thanks for listening to this Financial Standard podcast. For more information, visit financialstandard.com.au. Please keep in mind that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider personal circumstances. Reliance should not be placed on any content without further independent financial research and advice. 